Hello there, and welcome to Down to Sleep. This is my podcast of softly spoken audiobooks and bedtime stories to help you get a good night's rest. Please do leave a positive review, a thumbs up, or five stars on whatever app you're listening on. If you would prefer to listen on YouTube, then head over to youtube.com slash down to sleep. There is also a Patreon where you can support me and the podcast and get two readings every week. Members of the Patreon hear everything first and get to vote on what books I read next and prioritize. So come and join me at patreon.com slash down to sleep. You can find links to those and my Instagram in the info for this episode. Let's go ahead and take a nice deep breath. Let's tuck you in and let's get down to sleep. See you what, 16? I asked, trying not to look like an idiot as I fluttered my eyelids the way I'd seen girls do on TV. I just turned 15, he confessed, flattered. Really? My face was full of false surprise. I would have thought you were older. I'm tall for my age, he explained. Do you come up to Forks much? I asked archly, as if I was hoping for a yes. I sounded idiotic to myself. I was afraid he would turn on me with disgust and accuse me of my fraud, but he still seemed flattered. Not too much, he admitted with a frown, but when I get my car finished, I can go up as much as I want after I get my license, he amended. Who was that other boy Lauren was talking to? He seemed a little old to be hanging out with us. I purposefully lumped myself in with the youngsters, trying to make it clear that I preferred Jacob. That's Sam. He's 19, he informed me. What was that he was saying about the doctor's family? I asked innocently. The Collins? Oh, they're not supposed to come onto the reservation. He looked away, out toward James Island, as he confirmed what I'd thought I'd heard in Sam's voice. Why not? He glanced back at me, biting his lip. Oops, I'm not supposed to say anything about that. Oh, I won't tell anyone. I'm just curious. I tried to make my smile alluring, wondering if I was laying it on too thick. He smiled back, though, looking allured. Then he lifted one eyebrow, and his voice was even huskier than before. Do you like scary stories? he asked ominously. I love them, I enthused, making an effort to smolder at him. Jacob strolled to a nearby driftwood tree that had its roots sticking out like the attenuated legs of a huge pale spider. He perched lightly on one of the twisted roots while I sat beneath him on the body of the tree. He stared down at the rocks, a smile hovering around the edges of his broad lips. I could see he was going to try to make this good. I focused on keeping the vital interest I felt out of my eyes. Do you know any of our old stories about where we came from? The Quileutes, I mean, he began. Not really, I admitted. Well, there are lots of legends, some of them claiming to date back to the flood. Supposedly the ancient Quileutes tied their canoes to the tops of the tallest trees on the mountain 
to survive like Noah and the Ark. He smiled to show me how little stock he put in the histories. Another legend claims that we descended from wolves and that the wolves are our brothers still. It's against tribal law to kill them. Then there are stories about the cold ones. His voice dropped a little lower. The cold ones, I asked, not faking my intrigue now. Yes, there are stories of the cold ones as old as the wolf legends, and some much more recent. According to legend, my own great-grandfather knew some of them. He was the one who made the treaty that kept them off our land. He rolled his eyes. Your great-grandfather, I encouraged. He was a tribal elder, like my father. You see, the cold ones are the natural enemies of the wolf. Well, not the wolf, really, but the wolves that turn into men, like our ancestors. You would call them werewolves. Werewolves have enemies? Only one. I stared at him earnestly, hoping to disguise my impatience as admiration. So you see, Jacob continued, the cold ones are traditionally our enemies, but this pack that came to our territory during my great-grandfather's time was different. They didn't hunt the way others of their kind did. They weren't supposed to be dangerous to the tribe, so my great-grandfather made a truce with them. If they would promise to stay off our lands, we wouldn't expose them to the pale faces. He winked at me. If they weren't dangerous, then why? I tried to understand, struggling not to let him see how seriously I was considering his ghost story. There's always a risk for humans to be around the cold ones, even if they're civilized like this clan was. You never know when they might get too hungry to resist. He deliberately worked a thick edge of menace into his tone. What do you mean, civilized? They claimed that they didn't hunt humans. They supposedly were somehow able to prey on animals instead. I tried to keep my voice casual. So how does it fit in with the Cullens? Are they like the cold ones your great-grandfather met? No. He paused dramatically. They are the same ones. He must have thought the expression on my face was fear inspired by his story. He smiled, pleased, and continued. There are more of them now. A new female and a new male, but the rest are the same. In my great-grandfather's time, they already knew of the leader, Carlyle. He'd been here and gone before your people had even arrived. He was fighting a smile. And what are they? I finally asked. What are the cold ones? He smiled darkly. Blood drinkers, he replied in a chilling voice. Your people call them vampires. I stared out at the rough surf after he answered, not sure what my face was exposing. You have goosebumps, he laughed delightedly. You're a good storyteller. I complimented him, still staring into the waves. Pretty crazy stuff, though, isn't it? 
No wonder my dad doesn't want us to talk about it, 21. I couldn't control my expression enough to look at him yet. Don't worry, I won't give you away. I guess I just violated the treaty, he laughed. I'll take it to the grave, I promised. And then I shivered. Seriously, though, don't say anything to Charlie. He was pretty mad at my dad when he heard that some of us weren't going to the hospital since Dr. Cullen started working there. I won't. Of course not. Did you think we're a bunch of superstitious natives or what? He asked in a playful tone, but with a hint of worry. I still hadn't looked away from the ocean. I turned and smiled at him as normally as I could. No, no, I think you're very good at telling scary stories, though. I still have goosebumps, see? I held up my arm. Cool, he smiled. And then the sound of the beach rocks clattering against each other warned us that someone was approaching. Our heads snapped up at the same time to see Mike and Jessica about fifty yards away, walking toward us. There you are, Bella, Mike called in relief, waving his arm over his head. Is that your boyfriend? Jacob asked, alerted by the jealous edge in Mike's voice. I was surprised it was so obvious. No, no definitely not, I whispered. I was tremendously grateful to Jacob and eager to make him as happy as possible. I winked at him, carefully turning away from Mike to do so. He smiled, elated by my inept flirting. So when I get my license, he began, you should come see me in Forks. We could hang out sometime. I felt guilty as I said this, knowing I had used him, but I really did like Jacob. He was someone I could easily be friends with. Mike had reached us now, with Jessica still a few paces back. I could see his eyes appraising Jacob and looking satisfied at his obvious youth. Where have you been? he asked, though the answer was right in front of him. Jacob was telling me some local stories, I volunteered. It was really interesting. I smiled at Jacob warmly and he grinned back. Well, Mike paused, carefully reassessing the situation as he watched our camaraderie. We're packing up. It looks like it's going to rain soon. We all looked up at the glowering sky. It certainly did look like rain. Okay, I jumped up. I'm coming. It was nice to see you again, Jacob said, and I could tell he was taunting Mike just a bit. It really was. Next time Charlie comes down to see Billy, I'll come too, I promised. His grin stretched across his face. That would be cool. And thanks, I added earnestly. I pulled up my hood as we tramped across the rocks toward the parking lot. A few drops were beginning to fall, making black spots on the stones where they landed. When we got to the suburban, the others were already loading everything back in. I crawled into the back seat by Angela and Tyler announcing I'd already had my turn in the shotgun position. Angela just stared out the window at the escalating storm, and Lauren twisted around in the middle seat to occupy Tyler's attention. 
so I could simply lay my head back on the seat, close my eyes, and try very hard not to think. Chapter 7 Nightmare I told Charlie I had a lot of homework to do, that I didn't want anything to eat. There was a basketball game on that he was excited about, though of course I had no idea what was special about it, so he wasn't aware of anything unusual in my face or tone. Once in my room, I locked the door. I dug through my desk until I found my old headphones. I plugged them into my little CD player. I picked up a CD that Phil had given to me for Christmas. It was one of my favorite bands, but they used a little too much bass and shrieking for my tastes. I popped it into place and lay down on my bed. I put on the headphones, hit play, turned up the volume until it hurt my ears. I closed my eyes, but the light still intruded, so I added a pillow over the top half of my face. I concentrated very carefully on the music, trying to understand the lyrics, to unravel the complicated drum patterns. By the third time I had listened through the CD, I knew all the words, to the choruses at least. I was surprised to find I really did like the band after all. Once I got past the blaring noise, I'd have to thank Phil again. And it worked. The shattering beats made it impossible for me to think, which was the whole purpose of the exercise. I listened to the CD again and again, until I was singing along with all the songs, until finally I fell asleep. I opened my eyes to a familiar place, aware in some corner of my consciousness that I was dreaming. I recognized the green light of the forest. I could hear the waves crashing against the rocks somewhere nearby. And I knew that if I found the ocean, I'd be able to see the sun. I was trying to follow the sound. But then Jacob Black was there, tugging on my hand, pulling me back toward the blackest part of the forest. Jacob, what's wrong? I asked. His face was frightened as he yanked with all his strength against my resistance. I didn't want to go into the dark. Run, Bella. You have to run, he whispered, terrified. This way, Bella, I recognized Mike's voice calling out of the gloomy heart of the trees, but I couldn't see him. Why, I asked, still pulling against Jacob's grasp, desperate now to find the sun. But Jacob let go of my hand and yelped, suddenly shaking, falling to the dim forest floor. He twitched on the ground as I watched in horror. Jacob, I screamed. But he was gone. In his place was a large red-brown wolf with black eyes. The wolf faced away from me, pointing toward the shore. The hair on the back of his shoulders bristling. Low growls issuing from between his exposed fangs. Bella! Run, Mike cried out again from behind me, but I didn't turn. I was watching a light coming toward me from the beach. 
And then Edward stepped out from the trees, his skin faintly glowing, his eyes black and dangerous. He held up one hand and beckoned me to come to him. The wolf growled at my feet. I took a step forward toward Edward. He smiled then, and his teeth were sharp, pointed. Trust me, he purred. I took another step. The wolf launched himself across the space between me and the vampire, fangs aiming for the jugular. No, I screamed, wrenching upright out of my bed. My sudden movement caused the headphones to pull the CD player off the bedside table, and it clattered to the wooden floor. My light was still on, and I was sitting fully dressed on the bed, with my shoes on. I glanced, disoriented. At the clock on my dresser, it was 5.30 in the morning. I groaned, fell back, and rolled over onto my face, kicking off my boots. I was too uncomfortable to get anywhere near sleep, though. I rolled back over and unbuttoned my jeans, yanking them off awkwardly as I tried to stay horizontal. I could feel the braid in my hair, an uncomfortable ridge along the back of my skull. I turned onto my side and ripped the rubber band out, quickly combing through the plaits of my fingers. I pulled the pillow back over my eyes. It was all no use, of course. My subconscious had dredged up exactly the images that I had been trying so desperately to avoid. I was going to have to face them now. I sat up and my head spun for a minute as the blood flowed downward. First things first, I thought to myself, happy to put it off as long as possible. I grabbed my bathroom bag. The shower didn't last nearly as long as I hoped it would, though. Even taking the time to blow-dry my hair, I was soon out of things to do in the bathroom. Wrapped in a towel, I crossed back to my room. I couldn't tell if Charlie was still asleep or if he had already left. I went to look out my window, and the cruiser was gone, fishing again. I dressed slowly in my most comfy sweats, and then made my bed, something I never did. I couldn't put it off any longer. I went to my desk and switched on my old computer. I hated using the internet here. My modem was sadly outdated. My free service substandard. Just dialing up took so long that I decided to go get myself a bowl of cereal while I waited. I ate, slowly, chewing each bite with care. When I was done, I washed the bowl and spoon, dried them, and put them away. My feet dragged as I climbed the stairs. I went to my CD player first, picking it up off the floor, placing it precisely in the center of the table. I pulled out the headphones and put them away in the desk drawer. Then I turned the same CD on, turning it down to the point where it was background noise.
With another sigh, I turned to my computer. Naturally, the screen was covered in pop-up ads. I sat in my hard folding chair and began closing all the little windows. Eventually, I made it to my favorite search engine. I shot down a few more pop-ups and then typed in one word. Vampire. It took an infuriatingly long time, of course. When the results came up, there was a lot to sift through. Everything from movies and TV shows to role-playing games, underground metal and gothic cosmetic companies. Then I found a promising site. Vampires A to Z. I waited impatiently for it to load, quickly clicking closed each ad that flashed across the screen. Finally, the screen was finished. Simple, white background with black text. Academic looking. Two quotes greeted me on the homepage. Throughout the vast shadowy world of ghosts and demons, there is no figure so terrible, no figure so dreaded and abhorred, yet dight with such fearful fascination as the vampire, who is himself neither ghost nor demon, but yet who partakes the dark nature and possesses the mysterious and terrible qualities of both. Reverend Montague Summers If there is in this world a well-attested account it is that of the vampires. Nothing is lacking. Official reports, affidavits of well-known people, of surgeons, of priests, of magistrates. The judicial proof is most complete. And with all that, who is there who believes in vampires? Rousseau. The rest of the site was an alphabetized list of all the different myths of vampires held throughout the world. The first I clicked on, the Danag, was a Filipino vampire, supposedly responsible for planting taro on the islands long ago. The myth continued that the Danag worked with humans for many years, but the partnership ended one day, when a woman cut her finger and a Danag sucked her wound enjoying the taste so much that it drained her body completely of blood. I read carefully through the descriptions, looking for anything that sounded familiar, let alone plausible. It seemed that most vampire myths centered around beautiful women as demons and children as victims. They also seemed like constructs created to explain away the high mortality rates for young children and to give men an excuse for infidelity. Many of the stories involved bodiless spirits, warnings against improper burials. There wasn't much that sounded like the movies I'd seen, and only a very few, like the Hebrew Estri and the Polish Ubaya, were preoccupied with drinking blood. Only three entries really caught my attention. The Romanian Varukalaki, 
a powerful undead being who could appear as a beautiful, pale-skinned human. The Slovak Nelapsi, a creature so strong and fast it could massacre an entire village in the single hour after midnight. And one other, the Stragoni Benefici. About this last there was only one brief sentence. An Italian vampire said to be on the side of goodness, an immortal enemy of all evil vampires. It was a relief that one small entry, the one myth among hundreds that claimed the existence of good vampires. Overall, though, there was little that coincided with Jacob's stories or my own observations. I'd made a little catalogue in my mind as I'd read and carefully compared it with each myth. Speed, strength, beauty, pale skin, eyes that shift colour, and then Jacob's criteria. Blood drinkers, enemies of the werewolf, cold-skinned and immortal. There were very few myths that matched even one factor. And then another problem, one that I'd remembered from the small number of scary movies I'd seen, and that was backed up by today's reading. Vampires couldn't come out in the daytime. The sun would burn them to a cinder. They slept in coffins all day, and came out only at night. Aggravated, I snapped off the computer's main power switch not waiting to shut things down properly. Through my irritation, I felt overwhelming embarrassment. It was all so stupid. I was sitting in my room, researching vampires. What was wrong with me? I decided that most of the blame belonged on the doorstep of the town of Forks, and the entire sodden Olympic Peninsula, for that matter. I had to get out of the house, but there was nowhere I wanted to go that didn't involve a three-day drive. I pulled on my boots anyway, unclear where I was headed, and went downstairs. I shrugged into my raincoat without checking the weather and stomped out the door. It was overcast, but not raining yet. I ignore my truck and start east on foot, angling across Charlie's yard toward the ever-encroaching forest. It didn't take long till I was deep enough for the house and the road to be invisible, for the only sound to be the squish of the damp earth under my feet and the sudden cries of the jays. There was a thin ribbon of a trail that led through the forest here, or I wouldn't risk wandering on my own like this. My sense of direction was hopeless, I could get lost in much less helpful surroundings. The trail wound deeper and deeper into the forest, mostly east as far as I could tell. It snaked around the Sitka spruces and the hemlocks, the yews and the maples. And all I knew was due to Charlie pointing them out to me from the cruiser window in earlier days. There were many I didn't know, and others I couldn't be sure about because they were so covered in green parasites. I followed the trail as long as my anger at myself pushed me forward, 
As that started to ebb, I slowed. A few drops of moisture trickled down from the canopy above me, but I couldn't be certain if it was beginning to rain or if it was simply pools left over from yesterday, held high in the leaves above me, slowly dripping their way back to the earth. A recently fallen tree, I, I knew it was recent because it wasn't entirely carpeted in moss, rested against the trunk of one of her sisters, creating a sheltered little bench just a few safe feet off the trail. I stepped over the ferns and sat carefully, making sure my jacket was between the damp seat and my clothes wherever they touched, and leaned my hooded head back against the living tree. This was the wrong place to have come. I should have known. But where else was there to go? The forest was deep green, and far too much like the scene in last night's dream to allow for peace of mind. Now that there was no longer the sound of my soggy footsteps, the silence was piercing. The birds were quiet too. The drops increasing in frequency so it must be raining above. The ferns stood higher than my head now that I was seated. I knew someone could walk by the path three feet away and not see me. Here, in the trees, it was much easier to believe the absurdities that embarrassed me indoors. Nothing had changed in this forest for thousands of years. All the myths and legends of a hundred different lands seemed much more likely in this green haze than they had in my clear-cut bedroom. I forced myself to focus on the two most vital questions I had to answer, but I did so unwillingly. First, I had to decide if it was possible that what Jacob had said about the Cullens could be true. Immediately, my mind responded with a resounding negative. It was silly and morbid to entertain such ridiculous notions. But what then? I asked myself. There was no rational explanation for how I was alive at this moment. I listed again in my head the things I had observed myself. The impossible speed and strength. The eye color shifting from black to gold and back again. The inhuman beauty, the pale, frigid skin and more, small things that registered slowly how they never seemed to eat, the disturbing grace with which they moved, and the way he sometimes spoke, with unfamiliar cadences and phrases that better fit the style of a turn-of-the-century novel than that of a twenty-first-century classroom. He had skipped class the day we'd done blood-typing, he hadn't said no to the beach trip till he heard where we were going. He seemed to know what everyone around him was thinking, except me. He had told me he was the villain. Dangerous. Could the Collins be vampires? Well, they were something. Something outside the possibility of rational justification was taking place in front of my incredulous eyes. Whether it be Jacob's cold ones or my own superhero theory, 
Edward Cullen was not human. He was something more. So then maybe that would have to be my answer for now. And then the most important question of all. What was I going to do if it was true? <laughs>